Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Tom. I want to welcome you and uh, thank you for joining us today in person. Thank you for those of you who are joining us online for giving us some time this morning. If you don't know who that last person was that was up here, that's Pastor Justin. And he's our youth pastor and our youth ministries are just going to be gearing up as well. So if you have uh, uh, people in youth age in your family, uh, he's the person that you want to talk to. Uh, it's good to see you all. I've been away for the past three weeks and people ask me where did I go during my vacation and I tell them I went to Alberta. Good place. And uh, we went to see uh, our son and newly married uh, daughter-in-law in Calgary and then we went to Banff and then we went to my sister's farm and these are all different places in Alberta and so it was great to just spend some time connecting and uh, having some time together with Lori as well, just on our own. But it's good to be back as well. And uh, today we're going to start with something that I think is a word. I wonder if this word was mentioned at all in your household this past summer. It's a word that is uh, quite foreign in our culture today. People don't talk about it. You don't see it on the news. You don't see um, celebrities talk about it, certainly. It's the word holiness. And uh, I'd like you to think about how you react to that word. When you hear the word holiness, what does it do in, in your heart, in your soul? Do you feel attracted to it, intrigued by it, repulsed by it, maybe uncomfortable? with it holy means to be separate and the holiness of god describes his complete separateness from sin and his devotion and dedication to his own glory and so holiness for us means the same thing separation from sin and dedication to the glory of god but it's it's really foreign when you look at it in our world today if someone were to have a new boyfriend or girlfriend and they were telling their friend about it, probably the first thing their friend would not ask is, are they holy? Or if you invite family or friends over to your place for some time, maybe for an evening on Saturday night, you probably don't invite them and say, hey, let's get together and be holy. Or let's talk about holiness. It's just not that topic that but holiness is something that we do find in the bible and we know may know that the bible claims that god is holy and we know may know the command that we are to be holy because he is holy but talking about it just may seem different to us so considering your perspective on holiness i'd like you to consider this statement and let's have it up on the screen now true or false the lord's holiness reveals the path to the abundant life and by the abundant life i'm talking about what jesus talked about in john 10 verse 10 i have come that they might have life and have it to the full or abundantly the abundant life does not mean a life of wealth and prosperity it talks about a life filled with God and the Spirit. It is a life lived in harmony with God and the fullness that He brings 
Yet when we think of holiness, we probably don't think of abundance. We probably don't think of um, having much. We think of having less. We think of strictness. We think of severity. Maybe we even think of boring. The holy life is boring. So, is it possible that God's holiness reveals the pathway to the abundant life? And that's what I'm going to try to prove to you today. As we go back into the book of Ezekiel, for the last two messages on this book, last time we were in Ezekiel, we were in chapters 38 and 39, which were the Gog and Magog passage. And Gog was this king, this evil king with the super army that was out to destroy the people of God. And remember, he was convinced he was approaching an unsuspecting, defenseless people and he was going to destroy them and take God's possession for his own. And yet God promises to intervene and resoundingly defeat Gog and his super army. And Ezekiel's listeners, the exiles in Babylon are going to gain courage from that because they currently live under an oppressive regime. They live under the Babylonians. And so the latter messages from Ezekiel are messages of hope. So we go to the last vision in the book of Ezekiel today, and it's chapters 40 to 48, all one vision. And yet this vision is going to add to the weirdness factor in the book of Ezekiel. Our sign outside says, Ezekiel, the weirdest book in the Bible. We've seen lots of weird things. Well, these chapters are going to add to the weirdness because it contains six chapters of measurements of a new temple. And it seems like it's totally irrelevant to our lives today. Yet we have to remember this vision and these dimensions form part of the overall message that God has for his people. And amid these strange chapters, we're going to discover the section upon which I base the claim, the Lord's holiness reveals the pathway to the abundant life. So, if you have a Bible, please find Ezekiel chapter 40, where we'll start today. If you don't have a Bible, use the one in, the, in front of you there. It's on page 620. And we're going to look at two passage to, passages today. The first one in Ezekiel 40 will give us our bearings for this vision. And then the second one in Ezekiel 43 will provide the statements for this claim that the Lord's holiness leads or reveals the pathway to the abundant life. And my prayer today is that you will be encouraged through God's holiness to take the pathway to the abundant life or to continue on the pathway to the abundant life or to get back on the pathway to the abundant life. So we'll start in Ezekiel 40 and I'm just going to read the first eight verses. So this is Ezekiel talking writing and he says in the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month in the 14th year after the city was struck down on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me to the city in visions of God he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south 
And when he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth breadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. Then he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep, and the side rooms, one reed long and one reed broad, and the space between the side rooms, five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner end, one reed. And then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one reed. And on and on it goes. Measurement after measurement for six full chapters. So, to put all this in perspective, we have to go back to verse 1 of Ezekiel 40 and notice how Ezekiel locates the vision on a specific date. He says, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month. Now, in the Bible, numbers often mean more than simply conveying numerical information. And commentators have noticed that the number 25 is half of a jubilee cycle. The jubilee was a year commissioned by the Lord to be at the end of seven cycles of seven. So after 49 years, there was to be a jubilee year. And this required the forgiving of debts, the return of land to its original owners, and the release of slaves and prisoners. It was the year of the Lord's favor. And we find all this in Leviticus 25, at the beginning of the Bible, in the third book, Leviticus chapter 25, and in verse 10 we read, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you. And we find a portrayal of jubilee in Isaiah 61, when Jesus and Jesus quotes that passage when he begins his ministry in Luke 4. So if the number 25 points to halfway of Jubilee, it turns the reader's focus away from the past and towards the future. Remember, they've been looking back, looking back at all the destruction and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and they're living in exile and they're in Babylon because of all that stuff in the past. But now it's the 25th year of exile. It's halfway to Jubilee. There might be something good on the way. And commentators also notice the phrase in Ezekiel 40, verse 1, that says, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month. And there's another significant portion 
in the Old Testament scriptures that repeat this language or actually say it originally and that's back in Exodus 12 verses 2 and 3 where verse 2 says this month shall be for you the beginning of months it shall be the first month of the year to you so that's the beginning of the year and then listen to Exodus 12 verse 3 tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses a lamb for a household this is the Passover lamb whose blood would protect the Israelites from the death angel that would come over Egypt to take the lives of the firstborn so you've got the 25th year halfway to Jubilee you've got the beginning of the year on the 10th day which is the day of preparation for the Passover lambs and all of this an Israelite would immediately pick up on we know those dates we know what they symbolize they've got Jubilee they've got Passover they've got atonement they've got reconciliation in their minds already as Ezekiel begins this prophecy and so they're anticipating something big is going to happen and then in verse 2 Ezekiel begins to describe what happens or Ezekiel 40 verse 2 he sees a structure where the Lord takes him to this high mountain in Israel there's a structure and he sees a man who is a heavenly messenger and if you have a bulletin on the insert in your bulletin I want you to take that out and look at the side that says Ezekiel and near the top right you will see Ezekiel standing there amazed and a guy who's way taller than he is with this long hair and that's the portrayal of the heavenly messenger and the man is holding notice something that looks like a rope which is a linen cord and something that looks like a ruler or a measuring rod and commentators think that both of these were measuring tools and then the messenger tells Ezekiel the plan for the day verse 4 son of man look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you and then you are to declare all that you see to the house of Israel so he's going to take Ezekiel on a tour of this structure which turns out to be a new temple so the messenger measures the wall surrounding the temple complex and it turns out to be one reed or about 10 feet high and one reed wide and then he goes to the threshold of the gate and he begins to measure the gate and so if you turn this insert over on the other side you will see a depiction of the temple from Ezekiel's vision and notice at the bottom of this drawing there is a directional marker so you see the four points of the compass there and notice that east is to the right so the tour begins on the right side by that gate labeled the sphere of the prince and the messenger takes Ezekiel there and he measures a bunch of things and then he begins to take Ezekiel around the complex more he takes him to the that gate labeled the sphere of the Levites and he takes him to into other parts of 
the temple courts and finally into the inner courts and all the time he is taking measurements. So the question begs to be asked then, how do we interpret this? What does this all mean? Is this looking forward to a new physical temple that is going to be built someday? Or is it symbolic of something that God wants to communicate to his people? And if you look back on the side that says Ezekiel, notice in the middle that scroll and it has the title The Meaning of the Visions. And then you have those two interpretations. Number one, is it literal blueprints of a new temple in the future messianic kingdom? Or two, symbolic depiction of God's presence with his people in the messianic kingdom? And many Christians believe that this is Ezekiel 40 to 46 blueprints for a new temple that will be built during the millennial kingdom from which Jesus shall reign. Now one challenge to the literal view is the incompleteness of the blueprints in chapters 40 to 46. And those who have studied these chapters very carefully note that there's only two or three measurements that are vertical, up and down. The rest are horizontal. So it would be difficult to build a complete temple with complete drawings from these chapters. And another challenge to the literal view is the altar of sacrifice. Why do you need an altar to make sacrifices when Jesus himself has been the ultimate sacrifice on the cross? And yet many Christians continue to hold to the position this is a literal temple and this is going to happen at some point in the future when the temple will be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and from there Jesus will reign. The symbolic view argues that this vision portrays the greater spiritual reality, spiritual reality that God will one day dwell permanently with his people. And this temple description would help Ezekiel's listeners portray that. Because remember, they received news that the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. There is no temple anymore. That was their concept of the dwelling place of God. And now here, a new temple is coming. And so they're thinking, oh, God is going to dwell among us again. So it, so it gives that image to their minds. But then we actually see the Lord's presence in the next passage. And I want you to turn over to Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, it's on page 622 in the Bibles that you have there. And this is where God actually shows up in the vision. So verse 1, Then he, the heavenly messenger, led me to the gate, the gate facing east. So he's back to the original gate where they started the tour. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So, Notice in the drawing on the left-hand side the Lord's 
chariot throne is coming back. And if you're with us, several weeks ago, when we went through the Ezekiel's first vision of a temple in of the temple in chapters 8 to 10, remember the heavenly messenger took Ezekiel on a tour of the temple and the temple complex, but it was not to take measurements. It was to see all the abominable, abominable ways the Israelites were worshiping other gods. And then at the end of that vision was the devastating depiction of the Lord's glory departing from the temple. And he departed on his chariot throne and went east. And now the Lord is coming back. And he comes through the east gate and he goes through the gate for the Levites and he goes right into the temple. And if you're looking at the temple drawing again, the sphere of Yahweh, he goes right into the new temple. And then the Lord speaks, Ezekiel 43, verses 6 to 9. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. An image of, I'm going to plant myself here. Where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever, and the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. And so the Lord promises to dwell with them forever. He will never again depart from them. He reminds them of some of the abominations that they had committed in the past, worshiping idols, perhaps venerating dead kings, and that whole thing about thresholds and doorposts being together was when the kings of Israel or of Judah would build their palaces right up to the temple as if they had the same amount of power as God did that wasn't going to happen again but the key verses for our question today are found in verses 10 and 11 of Ezekiel 43 so listen carefully or follow along as for you son of man describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan and if they are ashamed of all they have done make known to them the design of the temple its arrangement its exits and its entrances that is its whole design and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. So the Lord commands Ezekiel to describe the temple plan so the people will be ashamed of their sin. Well, that's weird. Have you ever looked at the blueprints of a proposed building, maybe the plan of a house that 
you wanted to build. And after you looked at those blueprints and house, you said, oh, I need to confess my sins. No. Or those of you who were with us 15 years ago when we built this sanctuary, and remember we would look at the plans, and when you look at those plans, after looking at them, did you think, oh, I need to repent? No. So what is going on here? How can measuring the temple lead to recognition of sin? And I think the best explanation is the perfection of the temple. If you look again at the temple drawing, notice its perfect symmetry. A perfect square, no weird corners, nothing out of place, perfectly aligned, pointing to the perfection of the designer. And as the exiles heard these measurements, maybe they began to think, you know, it was my sins that contributed to the destruction of the previous temple. Or maybe they were reminded of the fact they had been comparing themselves to pagan nations in their walk with God and said, oh, well, compared to those nations, compared to the Babylonians, we are way closer to God than they are. But compared to the holiness of God, the perfection of God, they fell far short. And somehow, the perfection of the temple reminded them of God's perfection, including his holiness. And it's humbling to see the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the power of God. Think about Isaiah, the prophet. And in chapter 6, he has a vision from the Lord and he sees the Lord high and exalted. The train of the Lord fills the temple with glory. And he sees those high order angels, the seraphim flying around and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And how does Isaiah respond? Does he say, I have never seen a more incredible show. This is awesome. No. He says in Isaiah 6 verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing God's holiness exposed Isaiah's sinfulness. And yet then he sees the seraphim flying towards him. And I always think at this moment Isaiah thinks he's going to get killed. But the seraphim has these tongs and this burning coal in the tongs. And he touches Isaiah's lips and atones for his sin. And then God commissions Isaiah to ministry. Or think about Peter, when Jesus enabled that miraculous catch of fish, and they're pulling in this net of a fish that, like they've never experienced before, and Peter's enjoying it, when suddenly he realizes, this is a supernatural act of God. And God is standing right before me. And Peter says in Luke 5, 8, depart from me, Lord for I am a sinful man. 
And Ezekiel, when he sees the glory of the Lord coming in this vision in chapter 3, he falls on his face. So let's go back to our main statement. The Lord's holiness reveals the path to the abundant life. How? One, it exposes our sinfulness. Two, it reveals our need for grace. And three, it uncovers our need for God's power to live holy lives. Because we see how far removed we are from God's holiness and how much we have to grow to become holy like him. And this is what the vision aimed to accomplish in the lives of Ezekiel's listeners and readers. They would see the Lord's perfection and holiness and then through repentance and humility, the Lord would give grace and then he would empower them to live holy lives. Even in Ezekiel 43, 7, we read, the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. So what happened? And remember, this is about in the 500s before Christ, when Ezekiel is ministering. And remember, they have jubilee in their minds. And remember, they have Passover in their minds for the vision came on the day of preparation for the Passover lamb and remember God is now going to return to dwell in their presence and so there needs to be reconciliation somehow between God and the people so the big question is who's going to be the Passover lamb that can pull all this off and 500 years later along comes Jesus and he begins his ministry in Luke 4 by reading from Isaiah 61 about the year of Jubilee. But Jesus doesn't only announce Jubilee, he brings it. And the people that he ministers to experience forgiveness for their sins, release from their slavery to sin, healing from their diseases, deliverance from their demons. They're experiencing the year of the Lord's favor through Jesus' ministry. And then during the Passover feast, during the last days of his life, on the day of preparation, Jesus is arrested, and then the next day, he is offered up as the ultimate Passover lamb on the cross. And through his blood and through his death, we can receive God's grace and forgiveness, and we receive the Holy Spirit who empowers us to holy living. But that's not all. The New Testament writers look at all this and look at all the Old Testament and begin to interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus and they start talking about a new temple. But it's not a physical building. It's you and me. We are the temple of the living God. Listen to some New Testament texts on that. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or the devil? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation, that's building language, foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, that's building language, in whom the whole structure, building language, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that means you and I as Christians individually are the temple of God and we collectively as the body of Christ are the temple of God built on the foundations of the apostle and prophets. Or 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 10 as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Temple language. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Temple language. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen, and precious, and whoever believes in him will not, be put, will not be put to shame. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, temple language, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into night. And remember the definition of holiness? Separation from sin, giving glory to God. And this means that Christians here today in this room and watching online already experience a taste of God dwelling in us and among us. And we look forward to the day when we will see him face to face in paradise. And that's next week's message, Ezekiel 47 and 48. But let's conclude by going back to our claim today. The Lord's holiness reveals the path to the abundant life and it exposes our needs for forgiveness and grace and power. How do we go down the path? Pretty simple. One, repent of sinfulness and sin. Two, receive the Lord's grace and forgiveness. Three, depend on the spirit for holy living and the abundant life. And that's the pathway. And it starts by seeing the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the power of God, the glory of God. And then we begin to see, you know this holiness thing? It might not be so bad after all. It's good for us. It's part of the abundant life. Doesn't mean life is easy. Doesn't mean we'll be free of problems. It does mean that we get to taste the abundant life with the fullness of God dwelling in us. And so my question as we conclude today to you is simply this. Are you on this path?
And some of you maybe need to start down this path for the first time in your life. You thought holiness was stupid, boring, strict, but it's the way to life. So you need to repent of your sin and receive God's forgiveness and grace and be empowered by the Spirit to live a holy life. And some of us who are already Christians have gotten off this path lately and we need to get back on and follow the same pathway to get right with God and maybe that's you today. And all of us who are Christians recognize taking these, these three steps doesn't happen just once in our journey. We repent of our sin and sinfulness. We receive God's grace and forgiveness. He empowers us to live a holy life. We start walking down the path and all of a sudden we come to another area of sin in our life or another flaw. So we repent of our sin and sinfulness. We receive God's grace and forgiveness. He empowers us to overcome that sin. We come to another one. And that's the Christian life. Until we see him face to face. But until then, because of God's holiness, we can see and follow this path to the abundant life. And so as we pray and come to the Lord, I'd like to invite you to respond to whatever God has been saying to you during this time. Yes, he calls us to be holy, but he also empowers us to fulfill his calling. And so if there's something that you need to make right with God, will you do that now? Or maybe you've just given up on going on that path. You need to get back on it. Or you need strength to persevere. Will you lift up your request to God now? And oh God, we come to you today and we give you glory for your holiness and your perfection and your power. And we recognize that we naturally shrink back from it when we're confronted with it because it's so foreign to us and yet we are also strangely attracted. And Jesus was the most holy person who ever lived and people flocked to him. And we need you, Jesus. So will you be our strength and our power for holy living, for holy perseverance to follow you wherever you call us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.